This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker. We have Kate Gaddis, founder of T3 that recently got acquired, and also an author and artist. So in this episode, we're mainly going to focus on this acquisition of T3, how Kate raised it to the, the point where she can actually sell it, having multiple uh, propositions for acquisition. So Kate, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on T3. Well, thank you. Uh, nice to be with you today. Uh, yes, I started my company, uh, T3, in 1989. Um, I had been in the advertising business for a number of years before that. And many of you probably don't recall, but uh, the late 80s, we experienced a very bad recession. It was a terrible one, um, different than the one we're in today, but uh, certainly very devastating. So I had re uh, worked a business plan for the company that I was working for at the time and uh, presented that to the advisory group and to the president of the company. And a few minutes later, the president came in my office and told me he was not going to support my business plan. And so I got mad and I quit without mm-hmm. really even knowing what I was going to do. But it hit me immediately that I had to go start my own company. And so during this very difficult downturn, the only available funds that I had to start the money was my retirement account. And I had $16,000 in my IRA. So I cashed that in and the rest is history. I started the business uh, that year. It was in March 1st, 1989. That's that's an epic start, quitting your job, cashing out your retirement account. You put it all there. And as we might see, that, that was successful. So C3 didn't raise any money whatsoever except for that retirement account that you had, right? That's correct. Uh, I did not go out for funding. And it would have been almost impossible to have gotten it at the time uh, because of the economy that we were in. But it was never a strategy of mine to raise funds anyway. I'm a big bootstrapper and I wanted to be able to prove that I could make a profit and make my own decisions basically because the minute you take any outside dollars, um, be it from an investment group or a bank or um, whomever, then all of a sudden you are answering to them. And my goal was to be able to make my own decisions, act quickly, pivot quickly if I had to and build my business based on my clients and not on a board of directors or an outside group dictating my next move. Right, right. So uh, we'll talk about your clients later on. First, I wanted to clarify what exactly was T3 doing. Okay. So, you know, at the time, and you dial back to 1989, the advertising business was what we call the traditional advertising business. And that was producing television commercials and outdoor boards, radio mm-hmm. spots, uh, brochures, uh, logos, um, branding exercises, uh, all of those things, um, print and newspaper ads, those things that all of us kind of remember back in the day when that was all we had to communicate with our audiences before internet marketing. And so what what I did, though, was from the very beginning and my business plan really spelled out that we were going to be more than just an ad agency. We were going to be a marketing think tank. And so T3 stands for the think tank, the three T's, the think tank. We shortened it mm-hmm. to T3 because... 
we wanted to bring our clients solutions that sometimes they didn't ask for, uh, some ideas. And literally back then, again, before internet marketing was available to all of us, um, we would do things like organize, we organized a parade for one client. Oh uh, we <laughs> did all kinds of things that were not necessarily what I would call an ad like object. Uh, we had events. We did, uh, PR work around how to bring people in the community together and and have them be our mouthpieces out there. I mean, there was just a lot of different things that we did. We did use traditional advertising. Believe me, that was part of the mix. But uh, mm-hmm. what we were really trying to do was think outside of what was basically available to our clients at the time. So it was actually worked. Uh, and we we were able to continue to gain clients. I had a national client within the first year that I started the business, which is unbelievable considering oh, yeah. I started the business in Austin, Texas, which in those days was a very sleepy little town. Some <laughs> people may think that Austin is a happening place now, but it was not happening in the late 80s. And so we, we really were fairly fortunate to be able to uh, expand uh, beyond our, our region fairly quickly. That's great. So we'll definitely, uh, first of all, that's that's great that you were starting in Austin when it was such a tiny town. Right now it's booming and more and more people whom I know in the startup world are actually based in Austin. I'm like, wait, is that city really that big? And it turns yeah. out, yes, yes, it really is. So <laughs> how, how exactly did you manage to acquire that big national customer in the first year of your business, how is it possible? Well, it was really kind of a, you know, serendipitous, I suppose. But um, we had a group of investors that lived in Austin and they came together and decided to buy up cable companies. Now, again, mm-hmm. dial back to the early 90s. This, these were the days before people really were paying for television. And so so this group of investors in Austin, Texas, uh, bought up cable companies around the country. And we actually were invited to pitch their business because the marketing person who had arrived there, not from Austin, decided, wouldn't it be great if we could find an agency in Austin to work with and not have to, you know, we'd have someone right here with us as we develop these plans. So we pitched the business and won it, which was amazing. Uh, But what was so fascinating is we all, again, dial back and people didn't want to pay for TV. You know, the attitude was I have ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, and maybe some local channels, and I don't need to pay money for ESPN or or whatever. So our job was to uh, get members, people to pay for TV. And it was very exciting. Our, Our very first big campaign actually won ESPN's number one campaign in the country. We also won two national addies within the first two years. So our work was not only producing results, which is what I was always about, but we also gained uh, incredible national recognition for our creative work right out of the shoot. And that was pretty incredible for a tiny company like mine. Right. So you're actually one of the reasons for why we're paying for TV now, right? Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, and why you're going to continue to pay, but for content, you know, <laughs> and maybe even pay more because of all the new venues out there. But, but yes, and, and people were resistant. Uh, but you know, we we're running these campaigns in Chicago, Anchorage, Alaska, uh, Atlanta, Dallas, you know, and all these big cities where we were trying to garner, uh, clients and, and customers for the cable industry. 
That's great. And I will definitely blame you on paying for my TV, but we'll do that later after the episode is over. But for now, I would like you to ask for your advice on startup founders who are now trying to acquire those big customers. So a lot of my listeners are early stage founders who have some traction, but not that much, not that they're recognized on a national level. You know, what's your advice for them to, to acquire those big customers? It all comes down to just, I, this is a very simple phrase from my book, but, and I did write a book called Cowgirl Power, How to Kick Ass in Business and Life. And we can talk about that later if we have time. But I have this, this concept of what I call putting yourself out there. If you're a founder of a company, you're the face of the company, basically. And you may not be a big networker or extrovert, but you're going to have to either team with someone who is or amp it up uh, during this time of trying to sell your business to others. Because if you don't believe in yourself and can't sell it and get out there among potential customers or clients, then who else really can? Because you have the passion you have the expertise, you have the vision. And if you can get out there and share that, it can be contagious to people. And I don't mean that in a terrible way. Contagious sounds bad these days, but, yep. um, but it's, it's really what I did. And, into any audience that I could get in front of. And sometimes, you know, back in the earlier days, it was, um, I had some hospital accounts. And so I put myself into the hospital conferences and I would show up and, and try to mm-hmm. speak at those or meet people and network. So you start to build a network. And before, again, we had these incredible databases of people. I kept a Rolodex that you wouldn't believe, the old Rolodex. And I could pick up the phone and call people and say, wow, we have an idea. And I think it might be exciting for you if you'll just give us five minutes to talk to you about it. Uh, I always found that clients and potential clients were very interested to hear about some thinking or ideas that they just hadn't thought of that day. And sometimes it might have been a little avant-garde, a little scary or something they weren't ready Mm -hmm. to take advantage of or to buy. But just keeping that pace out there uh, was exciting to them. When you think about it, uh, if, if I'm a company and I hire an outside marketing or advertising firm, for example, like ours, that's what I'm paying for. I'm paying for hope, energy, enthusiasm, creativity, and getting things done that I can't do myself, or why would I hire you? So we always tried to keep that pace out ahead of the clients. And we would say, you know, you may not be ready for this, but we see this as a great new opportunity. Many times uh, they would come around and say, you know what, you're right, let's do it, let's try it. And so we would, here's one thing too. A lot of times, I think when you're a small business or you're starting, you think, I've got to go out and just get the whole thing or I've got to, I'm afraid to go out and pitch that big piece of business or go meet with them. I always said, let's just go for a tiny project. Let us in the door and give us a chance with this small task. And then what would happen over and over is that if we could prove that successful, if we executed well, if we got results, then they would give us that next project and the next and the next. So many of the Fortune 100, 200 clients that we ended up working with did not start with an all-out takeover where we were pitching against all the big agencies and saying, we're going to win it all. It would be to go in and take a discrete project and be successful with that. And Mm -hmm. that built the trust between client and my company and my team, it also gave us a chance to get to know each other. And and then as things would happen, we could prove that you have to do this. I will give advice to anyone out there. If you get 
even the door cracking open with a big client or a big customer, you have to be able to prove that you can scale the business with them because that is the biggest fear that a big company has in hiring a smaller company. First of all, they have to trust you that you're not going to screw up their business. And second, they have to say, well, Mm -hmm. if we give you work, how are you going to scale with us? How are you going to have the team behind us so that you won't let us down? So over and over and over, I proved that I could scale the business, but it was the biggest question I always got. You know, okay, we'll let you in the door, but but, you know, are you going to be able to uh, provide a team if we give you more work? So it's the balance between those things. That's great. And I think that your advice on going to conferences and just pitching and just being out there, it's, it's great advice. I think it's, it's working even now in these days with uh, everything being digitalized. I think it's great. So here I want to move on to probably the, the, the most fun part of our episode, which is the acquisition part of T3. How did this happen? How did you get to the acquisition? Well, you know, for everyone to know, I I mentioned I started the company in 1989. So I had almost a 31-year run of being independent. And that was the way that I built the company. We were never built to sell the company. Now, I have a great regard and respect for any of your listeners out there who start a company with the vision to sell it. And that's a perfectly legitimate business strategy to say, we're going to roll it up, you know, we'll build it to this point and then we're going to sell it. Uh, and that's, that's very uh, interesting. And I, I admire that, but that was not my strategy. My strategy was to always invest back in my own company and help it grow organically without the outside funds and without really, again, anyone dictating what our next move would be and and really which clients that we could work with. So we always had a lot of freedom to work with the clients we wanted to. So with being all that said, um, you know, you get down a path and my family was involved uh, certainly in the business to a certain extent. And toward the end of the run, I had a CEO of T3. My oldest son had joined the company and had been there a few years and actually was a, a key player. Uh, I finally named him president. And one day we had a family meeting. Um, I have three children and a husband, and we got together for one of our uh, twice a year family meetings where we just talk about life and what we're all doing and what our business strategies are going to be. Um, and uh, we all decided that maybe we should just look out and see what interest would be in buying T3 and would it be something that we should entertain. And of course, this was very bittersweet for me and it, it, it made my stomach turn, to be honest with you. I couldn't imagine, you know, letting go of this baby that I built uh, after all these years. But then I also thought, well, You know, a recession can come. Things are going to change. And personally, I am ready to kind of move into a different phase of my life where I'm doing more more and more public speaking, uh, writing uh, with my book and other uh, types of writing. I'm an artist. Uh, and I've actually been quite successful with one woman shows in New York and I was very excited about pursuing my art career as well. So I thought, well, let's try it. And you have to understand through the years we had been approached to, uh, by many, many, uh, companies and advertising holding companies and other types that wanted to buy the company. And I always said no. And I wouldn't even entertain their offer or even discuss it with them. So we just kind of didn't think we were going to sell, but. Again, we decided to do it. So when we did, we decided to hire an investment banking firm, actually what some people would call brokers. Um, and they 
facilitated this process where we said, let's cast about and see what interest is out there uh, in buying T3. And it would have to be, for my standards, a company uh, that I would want to do business with, that I felt was good for the company, that was going to be good for my team. Uh, and if we were to entertain such a sale, that it would be a good thing. So um, we did it, and we were amazed at the number of interest of interested parties that we had. It was almost 60 to begin with. But of course, of those 60, we started narrowing it down to about 20. We took 20, a good look at about 20 of the uh, companies and their proposals. We narrowed that down to about 10 and then it got to five. And then we got very serious with those final five. And I knew all the way through this, I could say no at any time. So we were never in a position of desperation to sell the business. And that puts you in a position of strength. And so I was never saying, okay, I, I told our brokers, I told these people that at any moment, if I didn't like the deal, and if I thought it was going south, I was going to pull the plug. So we did get down the road. It was a very difficult process on many levels. It took a lot of scrutiny, uh, a lot of scrubbing back through numbers and, and relationships. And our attorneys and, and CPAs and everyone were on phone calls twice, three times a day going through all this. And so we finally got to a point, though, that I felt like there was a company that I felt good about. Um, the offer looked solid um, and it was a cash offer. We did maintain some equity in, in this process, but I was pleased with the cash offer. I was pleased with uh, the quality of the company that wanted to purchase us, and it was not an advertising agency. Oddly enough, we ended up with a company called LRW that has been renowned and very well-known for their data through the years and, and analytics and research and customer insights, which we love, and we had always been right in the center of that with our own company, but not as sophisticated as what they could bring to us. So we felt like bringing these two companies together was going to be a really strong win-win. And uh, my deal, though, was that it was time for Gay Gaddis to step aside. And uh, I negotiated mm -hmm. in this for, for me to exit the business at the time. And uh, I did. And I, I've been pleased with what's been going on uh, with these two companies come together. The, we, we shared great clients, but we also brought really good new clients to each other. And so it's been really interesting. And then, of course, this virus situation and everybody is, you know, trying to deal with the reality of to uh, keep their businesses going in a strong way. Uh, and but I still believe that we did the right thing and, um, it, you know, it was the right time to get out. So for anyone out there who's looking to do this, it, it to hire a professional firm to help you do it, I think, is a way to go. I would not have done this without their counsel and advice. Uh, it would have been a different, I've never sold a company before. Uh, and so I always have believed when you do anything uh, that's different, new, uh, you need to hire professional services and great people to shepherd you through it and give you the advice that you need in uncharted times. Absolutely. I think that that was the right decision. And actually, I wanted to talk a little about that decision of hiring professional investment bankers. Uh, did you pay them in advance or did you pay them a fraction of a deal? So they're, they're in, in this other, situation uh, that I'm sure there's a lot of different uh, we paid them along the way some, but there was also obviously mm -hmm. uh, a commission to them at the end and at the close um, so that everyone was incented to do to make a good deal. Right, right. That explains it. So 
here I want to move on to the networking part uh, that you mentioned earlier. And I was curious, so for an early stage founders, where where should they find those new people? So we have conferences for sure. Where else would you seek for potential clients for for a good network? Well, here's the thing. Um, you can learn from people in your own industry, but way back, I decided to not spend really almost any time with industry groups. And what I mean by that, um, advertising groups, advertising associations and all that. I, I was involved in some and I supported some just, you know, through awards and all that kind of stuff. But my focus was to go to places or be on calls or join organizations or become a member of different types of groups that were people who could hire me. Now, no one in an advertising agency is going to hire me. <laughs> so I decided, do not waste your time with your own industry folks. Right. Now, you may learn from them and share best practices occasionally, but you're competing. So go out and find people that in organizations that are composed of individuals who might ever give you a dime of business. So that's what I did. And it was all different kinds of industry groups. You know, I would, I reached out because for us, you know, especially in the earlier days, it's gotten a little bit different now, but we, we had to deal with some serious non-competes. And especially if you get into the, the larger companies and let's say, for example, UPS has, uh, was a great client of mine for many years and we obviously could not work with FedEx or the United States Postal Service. Those were considered direct competitors and we were not able to do that. So I would try to reach out over and over into different industry groups that would allow me to get into client bases that were not going to be competitors to my existing clients. Uh, the other thing that I did was, which was very fortunate. And it's again, sometimes there's a little luck involved, but you make your own luck, as people say. Um, but we were in Austin, that sleepy little town. And in the early nineties, uh, Michael Dell was really ramping up his little company, Dell Computer Corporation. And so, like I said, we started with Dell with some very small little projects and it ended up becoming a huge client of ours. But the, the fascinating thing about that was that we early on, because of Michael's vision to sell on the internet, learned how to do some of the very first internet marketing campaigns. So instead of going to, again, advertising conferences, I started saddling up with people who were uh, mavericks and kind of the new folks out there experimenting with the internet. Uh, and I showed up at those events and started to meet people who were excited about some of the work we were doing because we were very, very much ahead of a lot of our competitors. And they would see that and say, well, I need to introduce you to so-and-so with this company because they're looking for what you're doing. If you don't get your own word out, and now it's so different too, we have different tools to get the word out. I mean, a social media presence, building your own brand, all those things can be done at a fairly low cost compared to what it used to be. Um, and, and, You've just got to put yourself out there again and connect with people who are not typically who you might think you should connect to because one person leads to the other. The other thing is I keep up with my network. Uh, it's very important. And the nice thing about it is that when you build a network, you have to realize that you'll probably be giving more than you'll ever get back. But that's okay because all these things tend to come around. Uh, one of the things that is most wonderful for me at this point in my career is that a friend or a colleague may call me and say, well, my daughter is 
really wanting to get into this industry or that, do you know anybody? Or someone will say, I lost my job. Uh, do you have any contacts that, that I maybe should talk to? And nine times out of 10, I've got a really good contact for them. And because I have dealt with my network and we've done favors for each other, and I call it reciprocity. Uh, some people don't understand that concept, but it's like, if I do something for you, you'll eventually do something for me and that's okay. It's not using people. It's really helping each other. And so that's a great joy for me to be able to make those connections. And that's what the network's really all about. And you'd be surprised how the, I call them the buckets of goodwill come back to you every time when you do a favor for somebody. Right, right. In Russia, we have a saying, something like uh, hand washes the hand, meaning like you help one, the other, the other person helps you back. So it's, it's definitely how things work. So here I want to move on to the question that I like to ask all successful founders who have sold their companies before. <coughs> and it's, uh, do you actually invest in companies right now as, as an angel investor or as probably an institutional investor? Because a lot of uh, ex-founders feel that they want to give back to community, to other founders who need their help. So do, do you do anything like that? Do you do investments? Do you do advisory for other startups? Um, I have been an advisor to quite a few groups. My actually, my both of my sons, uh, as our, as our part of our family, uh, have done that quite a bit, and they have have invested in quite a few companies. One of the things that that we did at T three um, was sometimes we would do um, some of our marketing services in lieu of payment and then therefore have an equity piece in some of these startup companies and some of those went well and some of them didn't but we we tried to pick the ones we thought had the best opportunity so that was the most recent thing that we did uh, rather than just pure cash inflow but then I have invested I invested in a woman-owned company that I feel really strongly about Uh, I can tell you what it is if you don't want me to sure, sure. Uh, it's yeah. called it's called hint water um i know the woman who started the business and uh, she went out for several rounds of funding it's a, a commercial product it's a water product there's it's a highly competitive space but i did uh, a personal investment in her company because i believe in it i really like the product i use it myself and so i'm cheering for for her uh kara to to do well in that uh second tranche of fundraising and and hopefully get a return on my investment. So, so yes, I do sometimes through different ways invest in startups or in, in companies that are um, led by individuals that I think have a real strong opportunity to succeed. It's not something we do every day, but it's certainly something that, you know, has merit and our family has been involved in that sort of fundraising for a while. That's great. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And now I want to move on to the part where actually, how can founders reach out to you? So I personally found you on Crunchbase, among the founders who recently sold their companies, and then I reached out to you on LinkedIn. Uh, so is that the way that founders should approach you with requests of you becoming their investor or advisor? Or is there any other way that should work better than this? Um, yes, I have a website now, and um, since I'm no longer T3, it's gay at gaygaddis.com. That's G-A-Y at G-A-Y-G-A-D-D-I-S.com. And there's an op- there's a way to reach and get in touch with my team there. Uh, and, and we respond to uh, people who reach out to us for all different kinds of things. And so that's a good way to find me. And then, of course, if you do go there, you'll learn a lot about what I'm doing now. 
That's great. That's great. I'll definitely leave a link to that website in the description of this episode. And here, I think we're coming up to our last question and then we'll wrap it up. So what's your advice to early startup founders right now who are listening to this? Uh, the, the times are really tough right now in terms of fundraising. So would you recommend them just trying to go for growth and trying to become profitable or do you recommend them some other way? Well, the only way I know to go is to try to make a profit and it is hard. And I, I'm, you know, I know right now that companies are struggling everywhere. There is no one really, there's only a few companies maybe who are coming out of this in a better place and they just happen to have uh, a product or service that was in demand during this unusual and terrible time. Um, so the only thing I know is hard work. You just have to dig in, make tough decisions and you know, this is this is the brutal side of business. But um, when you are faced with um, losses and all those things, the quicker you can make decisions to cut your losses and focus on the things that you can start to make money on, the better off you are. And then when you do need to raise more money, that's what these companies, investors are going to look at. How did you perform in a crisis? Those are the companies they want to invest in. It's okay to rock along when everything's roses and bluebirds and looking good, but the decisions you make now need to be quick and swift and sometimes they're brutal, but you need to do that if you're going to eventually come out of this. Uh, and you've got, and you've got to innovate. You've got to do things that you've never done before. Uh, that's how we always came out of a recession. Uh, and I went through several. Uh, we would come out and say, look, we're offering something that maybe our competitors aren't. Take a look. And so innovation is absolutely imperative. And if you're a founder and you're an entrepreneur, then you're an innovator. And give yourself a chance. Give yourself a big pat on the back because you have taken some tough steps to get where you are. And it's not easy. It's not easy to take that leap. But now is the time to really, really double down on everything you believe in and make it work. That's great advice and really positive too. And on this positive note, we'll wrap it up. Thanks gay a lot for coming up and for sharing your experience and knowledge in this field. I think it was great. I'll definitely leave a link to your website in the description of this episode and a link to your book so that uh, listeners who are listening to this episode right now can take a look at this. But we'll wrap it up here. Have a great day and stay safe out there. Certainly will. And you too. And thank you for inviting me.